It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is a titan of political broadcasting, Andrew Marr. This is even better than you would hope. So many stories, so much analysis. This is the main thing that you will be left feeling, I'm sure, as I was, is as well as his immense talent and intellect, Andrew Marr is phenomenal company. He is someone you would want to talk to all night, and I'm very lucky that I had the opportunity to do that and that you get to hear it. He is phenomenal company and can tell a story brilliantly. He's a phenomenal thinker. I mean, there's just a ton of stuff in here. Before we come on to that, my next guest is the former Shadow Foreign Secretary and now Shadow Secretary of State for Leveling Up, Lisa Nandy. My guest up to that on the 30th of May is West Streeting. All the dates, by the way, all my guests are listed in the uh, blurb for this show, in the show notes, so whatever device or platform you listen to this on. Uh, so here are the forthcoming guests. 16th of May, Lisa Nandy. 30th of May, West Streeting. 13th of June, Gary Neville. 27th of June, David Davis. And 11th of July, the Speaker of the House of Commons, Lindsay Hoyle. So every single one of those is going to be a phenomenal night. You can get tickets for those uh, either by clicking the link in the blurb or by going to my website, mattford.com. And of course, you can still come and see me on tour. Clowns to the left of me, Jokers to the right, continues to tour the UK, including uh, Nottingham, Gloucester, the Soho Theatre, Exeter, and various other places. Um, so uh, that's the end of the sales pitch. Today's show, oh my word. I mean, obviously I grew up idolising Andrew Marr um, and loving his show when it took over from David Frost, loving him as political editor of the BBC. And we talk about all those things. Um, the show, as always, begins, of course, uh, with a bit of stand-up. Oh, and what a fortnight's news to be gifted to tell jokes about. Of course, it's the sort of allegation that only a female MP would face. No male member of parliament's ever been accused of this. Ed Miliband never had to. <laughs> then he, look, the rumours... <laughs> well, it's simply not true. <laughs> the idea, look, I don't know uh, what David Cameron is talking about. There's been no point in the last three months where I've got the tip of my cock out to distract him. <laughs> simply untrue. <laughs> it would only face a, a female MP, of course. Uh, of course, the most talked about MP this week has been Neil Parrish. Where to start with a man none of us had ever heard of <laughs> in his 25 years as an MP, and now, I think in the last week, we've had every single emotion following this guy. I mean, at first, we're like, the man is a sex offender, put him on trial, he is a danger to everyone in there. Then you saw him being interviewed in his gilet on his front lawn, and you go... Okay, there's a slightly comical element to this. Uh, then you see him crying on the telly. You're like, I think I actually feel sorry for this guy. I mean, I genuinely think by the end of next week we'll be going, I, I actually think he should succeed Boris Johnson as the next Prime Minister. I think he's got the common touch. I think he can connect with people across this country in a way that very few people can. I mean, there have been so many moments, so many moments in the last... 
what, five days of this story. I think we should enjoy each and every one of them. So the story breaks that uh, a Tory MP had been caught watching porn twice in the House of Commons. He then uh, basically admits that it's him. In this amazing bit of telly where he comes out in his front lawn in his gilet and he goes, um, yeah, I, uh, um, I, I will submit myself to the inquiry and uh, I, will, um, I will abide by whatever the inquiry finds. And the journalists there go, but surely you know if you've referred yourself whether you're watching it. Yeah, and the inquiry will find that. And they go, you could just tell us now, well, I will abide by whatever the, the inquiry finds. And then they go, have you told your wife about this? Yeah, yeah, I have, yeah. And then the guy goes, what, just this afternoon? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then another guy goes, what, when she just came in now? And he goes... Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. He then gives a series of different interviews. One of them to the Telegraph, which read it online because it's done as a proper puff piece, and it's written almost like a novel. It's like, oh, his eight-year-old Labrador sits in front of the fire as Neil reflects, and then it says, Neil, very relaxed, conducts the interview in a dressing gown. <laughs> Mate, if you're apart from doing it in a thong, that's the second worst piece of clothing. If you're being accused of being Britain's biggest perv, don't do the interview in a fucking nylon smoking jacket. I've got nothing on underneath here. I just like the freedom, but uh, glass of champagne. Of course, the bit that's got all the attention is the line where he says, well, funnily enough, I was um, looking at websites of tractors and um, a website with a similar name uh, popped up. Now, of course, the interviewer should have said, why on earth were you even looking at photos of tractors in the House of Commons, <laughs> you loser? But he didn't, he didn't choose that line of attack. Now, a lot of people have been speculating on what is the phrase that could be porn and could be tractor-based. So, Cornhub was trending on Twitter for a few days. Um, obviously, no-one here is familiar with what the reference is, but... Uh, Apparently it rhymes with a website called Pornhub for the uninitiated. But I actually did Google Cornhub, and um, it already exists a website for eating corn on the cob, so it's not that. I mean, obviously, he runs a farm, and it trades in livestock as well. I mean, there's so many things that actually, if you think about it, I mean, the answer to that question could be, well, actually, you know, I, I run a working farm, we deal with livestock. I mean, a lot of the things I Google do return funny images. You know, I, I often Google well-hung meat, and that got caught in the <laughs> parliamentary spam folder. I tried to buy a hoe various times online, and that was very tricky. Um, I once Googled piston shaft, and that was appalling. <laughs> But it turns out that the uh, tractor that he was looking at is called the Dominator. <laughs> that is the offending article, specifically the Dominator 76, which you can't help feeling that the 76 element of it is what's tipped it over into the sort of very niche porn search. But he's, um, I love the fact that there must be, if this is happening to um, tractor people, there must be porn people on the other side. <laughs> Some poor, porn-obsessed pervert going, look, I just want to watch footage of a 76-year-old dominatrix and Google keeps giving me pictures of tractors. <laughs> At one point, he says, yeah, you know, I watched a bit, but my, my real crime was going back in for a second viewing. <laughs> it's almost like he'd been previously unaware of porn. You know, it, there's something really innocent. He's effectively saying, look, I, I mean, I don't know if you've seen porn, but, you know, it, once you've seen it, well, I mean, it is very watchable. You know, it's, some of it's bloody compelling. You know, I, I could not go back for a second viewing. He also says, look, I, I, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. I'm not proud of what I've done. <laughs> no one thought you were proud of it. 
I'll tell you what I'm proud of when I stand for re-election. I'm proud of delivering for local people. I'm proud of levelling up parts of this country. And I'm proud to be the first MP to watch Busty and Lusty Five in the House of Commons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the other phrase he, he uses where you think it, it, it makes him sound weirder. You know, it's, it's meant to be a great defence line, but it sounds quite odd. He says, uh, actually, you know, the last thing I wanted was anyone else to see me watching this. Um, and actually, you know, I, I, I did try and make sure that they couldn't. And you're like... What? The best way to do that, of course, would have been to not watch it in the House of Commons. I mean, the guy, you've got to work the supplementaries on an interview like this. The guy doesn't say, what measures did you take? Well, funny you ask, actually. I put my gilet over my head to create a sort of wanker's teepee. But um, sadly, I had it on full blast and didn't have my headphones. And that's, that's what gave the game away. But... Um, the, uh, the Labour Party political broadcast, by the way, is a phenomenal bit of unintentional comedy. It's Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves walking around a market. And there's a guy in a market stall. And he's going, yeah, I mean, trade ain't recovered, you know. I don't think we'll ever get it back the way it was. I paused it and looked at what he's selling on this market stall. All he sells, and you can watch this for yourself, exclusively, his stall only sells white teddy bears holding a love heart that say love on. <laughs> Mate, what sort of fucking business model are you? <laughs> of course, trade's not this. Like, I mean, in a way, I feel like Keir Starmer should have intervened and go, Look, I know we're felt like a party political broadcast here, mate, but I mean, there's one day of the year when you could sell that shit. <laughs> well, at least chuck in some fag lighters or something. You're wasting your life. I mean, obviously, the, the, the Labour Party political broadcast shouldn't have anything else on it. It should just be 30 seconds. It should just be Keir Starmer going, the Prime Minister is a criminal and his backbenchers wank over pictures of tractors. <laughs> Vote Labour on May the 5th. <laughs> it's actually very rare for these live recordings that I have someone who's not held elected office, sought it, or, or been a major political advisor. It's very rare to have someone who's been a broadcaster, someone else who's been an interviewer. But tonight's guest uh, is someone I've wanted to interview for a very long time. And obviously, the old catchphrase is back, um, as much as I've ever had one. Um, but obviously, tonight's guest is probably one of, certainly one of the greatest broadcast journalists this country's ever produced. For my generation, for older people, will have been the dominant political broadcaster of so many of the most serious moments uh, in politics in the last few years. Funny, charming, absolutely one of the most amazing intellects in modern British political broadcasting. He's just left the, uh, the BBC. He has a new show with LBC. Please raise the roof. One of this country's finest ever broadcasters, Andrew Marr! <laughs> Well, that was very nice. <laughs> but it's, it's all true, isn't it? I don't think I said anything uh, factually incorrect. Finest, best, <laughs> genial, all that stuff. All untrue, but the rest was true. <laughs> but you are definitely Andrew Marr. I am definitely Andrew Marr. That is a fact. Now, I've got you some whiskey. That's beautiful. Is that OK? Jorah, ten-year-old? Glinting at me there, yes. I should decant it. Good man. The audience unimpressed. Yeah. Is this cheap stuff, is it? No, it's not cheap, it's good. Yeah. It's very good, yeah. I always ask guests what they would like. Some people have cocktails. You asked for whiskey. I did, yeah. And so I got you... You did ask for peaty. I'm not sure if this is... It's peaty. not that peaty, but it'll do, it'll do fine. OK. Perfect. I feel like I've slightly let you down. <laughs> That's all right. Perfectly good drinking whiskey. <laughs> Driving whiskey, as they call it in some parts of Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> now, let me know when. 
That's brilliant. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. And that's just to start. You know, this is yeah. uh, this is all you can drink here at the. Uh, <laughs> lovely. Quite a lot of water you take with it there. Fifty-fifty. Half and half with a lot of water. These <laughs> yeah. So, Andrew, you've left the BBC after yeah. so long, and there's so much about your time at the BBC, obviously, we'll talk about. But what's it like going from a sort of global institution like the BBC, which is effectively like leaving the civil service, yeah. to go to a, the nimble private sector of the LBC? Thing is, Matt, I feel ten years younger... I love the BBC, I will always be pro-BBC, I will always defend the BBC. You will not read an Andrew Marr piece in the Daily Mail attacking the BBC. Uh, no, I've left it. They gave me fantastic 21 years. But for very good reasons, you know, you have to be completely politically neutral, or pretend to be completely <laughs> neutral, I should say. And I get that, you know. I would go onto the show every week um, and do the political editor job before that, and I would always remind myself when I was going on air that people watching have been voting for Jeremy Corbyn um, or our pro-SWP or their Nigel Farageists and Brexiteers and all the rest of it and everything in between. And they've all paid their licence fee and they all deserve fairness and uh, at least the appearance of neutrality from the people doing the show. But from purely personal point of view, it's incredibly frustrating and ageing, you know. You spend uh, 21 years, in my case, learning not to say what you think, and eventually that kind of internal censorship becomes something you internalise, becomes part of your personality, and you don't really say what you think when you're out having a whiskey with friends or you're with your family, though they would probably say, I say what I think too much. Um, and it's, it's just really, really irritating. And I thought... You know, uh, last year, before I left, I thought, I did not come into journalism. Well, I, I came into journalism to ruffle feathers and cause trouble and have fun. And where's the fun gone? Where are the, where are the feathers? There's not enough feathers. And so I need to get out to the BBC again. And I have to say, much though I love the BBC, for me personally, it's been absolutely wonderful. And I'm having a great time at LBC. LBC's a private company. BBC, I had 18 layers of grey-faced managers sitting on my shoulders the whole time. LBC, I've got the guy that runs LBC, Tom Cheel, and the guy that owns LBC, and that's it. And neither of them interfere with anything I say at all. They don't like it when I stop talking, because that's bad radio, but I can say whatever I like <laughs> while I'm talking. So is it... Did you leave at a time then where you'd become frustrated? Is that a reflection? Should we, should we infer from the time at which you left that you'd found it effectively, the modern era, impossible to be impartial? It was getting harder and harder and harder. Um, it's partly because of social media. So whatever you say gets analysed, ripped apart, you get shouted up. Poor Laura Koonsberg has had an absolutely miserable time in that regard as, as political editor. She couldn't move without being accused of um, being a kind of sleeping Marxist or being Dominic Cummings' best friend and Prime Minister's mouthpiece. It was appalling for her. And that, that was part of it, I, I guess, the, the atmosphere... And I think the danger for the BBC, it becomes a bit like a battered spouse, so thumped around by all sides, it's no longer quite sure which way is up or who it is. 
I mean, it's always been quite interesting perceptions of the BBC. Obviously, in the last few years, things have perhaps calmed down a bit on the Labour side, but you had Corbyn effectively saying... I mean, I remember a very passive-aggressive interview he did with you at the Brighton conference, where he's kind of going, well, I'm sure, Andrew, you agree with having a plural media. And you're like, mm. are you threatening Andrew Marr? Are you, are you <laughs> suggesting that Andrew Marr will be replaced by some Navarra media yeah, he was, person? Yes, he was suggesting that. Um, the best, my best moment with, with Jeremy Corbyn, I have to say, was earlier on when he hadn't thought things through. He never thought things through. He hadn't thought things through. <laughs> didn't really narrow it down. That's all, 70 at all, years at, at all, at all, at all. Uh, but he was, you know, he was leader of the Labour Party, and we were talking about his defence policy because we know where he stands on CND and Trident. So I said, would you cancel Trident nuclear submarines because that means whatever, eighteen thousand jobs straight down the Swanee in Scotland and all the rest? He said, no, no, Andrew, we're going to keep the submarines. I said, really? I said, but but you're anti-nuclear. He said, yes, we're going to keep Trident submarines. We just won't have any of the missiles on them. <laughs> I thought. I mean, we talked about track to get. You were talking about track to get in the first half, but I have to say, in terms of sort of political comedy, the idea of keeping the nuclear submarines without the nuclear weapons on board was just brilliant. <laughs> I don't know what they were going to fire, pamphlets or something. We <laughs> yeah. sort of Amazon Prime, but really fast. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, it must have been difficult. Actually, when you're, obviously, you're highly professional, but at moments like that, were there ever times where you struggle not to laugh or say, come on, this is just ludicrous? Yes. <laughs> very frequently, not very frequently. Um, you have to remember that um, the next question has to come and that if you're completely... Uh, your, your joy is on the floor. It's, it's very, very good television, but not for you. You just look like a prick. And, um, <laughs> I've actually, I've, I've written, uh, I've referred to this for my New Statesman column for next week, but um, the best example of that was when uh, Alexander Lebedev, father of Yevgeny Lebedev, owner of the Independent and the Evening Standard, so the father was um, a KGB guy, who was very close to the Kremlin, close to Putin, um, and made lots of money in that kind of oligarchy way that they do. I won't get into the details because the libel lawyers might be listening. Anyway, he came over, came over and he bought the, I think, the Evening Standard first. Yeah. And this idea that this Russian guy, alleged to have been in the KGB, had bought a British newspaper still seemed weird. So I was quite a young interviewee, interviewer at the time, and I interviewed him. And so I, and he was very strangely dressed. He had a very, very natty jacket. A bit like, I've got a very natty jacket on today, by the way. I had a very natty jacket, a little leather tie, rimless glasses. He looked a bit like a 1970s disco dancer. Um, but with a slightly sinister cast of face. And so I said to him, uh, well, you know, I read that, it's tr that you were in the KGB in London in the 1980s. He goes, yes, this is true. I was in the KGB in London in the 1980s. And I say, so I have to ask you, what sort of stuff were you doing in London in the KGB in the 1980s? Uh, you know, was it sort of funny hats and dead drops and following people around? I said, yes, yes, obviously, all of that. <laughs> and, and a little torture. <laughs> and from time to time, unfortunately, there is, I am involved in a firing squad. <laughs> ha, 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 I am joking. <laughs> oh, my, my, my face, I didn't, I didn't know what to say. I mean, of course, these jokes are slightly less funny now, but... Yeah. <laughs> well, better than most of the ones I've written tonight. So <laughs> I mean, that must be surreal. Uh, who are the people? Because I often think giving a short, quick answer is the interviewer's nightmare, where you sort of lay Michael. out this thing, and they just go, no. And you're like, oh, OK, I've got to think of something. 
Michael Gove. Michael Gove, every time. The longer the question, the shorter the answer. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. No. Um, it's very, very unsettling. Then he does give a very long answer. You're not prepared to interrupt because it's been so many short answers. He is probably the cleverest member of the cabinet that are, you know, around to be interviewed. He's, he's the sharpest at, at switching things, moving them around. You might say not a very, very high bar, but he's a reasonably <laughs> clever guy. Um, and, and, you know, of course, one of the problems with Michael is that he's a, he's a journalist most of his life, and therefore he understands all the tricks. Because with an interview, as you know, you, you guide somewhere gently, someone gently towards where you want to get them for the final question. It's the killer question when they can't avoid it. But he sees it coming, and he can move it. As did Obama when I interviewed him. He was lethal. A little smile would come on his face. He could see exactly what I was trying to do, and he just pushed me off every single time I got anywhere near where he wanted. And who are... Because obviously quite a few... I mean, it's, it would be an exaggeration to say journalists. Obviously, Boris Johnson, a columnist. Michael Gove, a journalist. There are people who made their name in print and sometimes in broadcast who then do cross over into elected politics. Was it something you ever considered? No, what was when I was very, very young, I was into politics, but it, I, I turned off politics at an early stage. Partly, I thought, I can't face the abuse and so many people hating you if you're a politician. I'll become a journalist instead. <laughs> <laughs> and then Twitter happened. Um, but no, no, I, no I, I never really took it seriously. I have to say there is a semi-serious argument that what has gone wrong with this great country of ours is too many journalists moving into politics. Because if you think about it, what journalists are taught to do, um, when I first went to The Economist, meant to be a very, very kind of high-minded, serious news magazine, I was taken to one side down a corridor by an elderly buffer there, and he said, Andrew, welcome to The Economist. I, I think it's time to tell you what our secret motto is. But we don't talk a lot about it outside. Uh, but it's the secret of all good journalism. Uh, and I said, OK, thank you, what's that? He said, simplify then exaggerate. <laughs> and you know what? That's what journalists are taught to do. And it's great if you're a journalist, but if you're running a huge, massive department of state, um, it's not necessarily the best skill to have. You know, there are other things they can do. I, I do wonder, that, worry that the kind of skill of um, really, really aggressive use of language, simplifying, mocking, all the things that columnists do, um, has, uh, has infected our journalism. Boris Johnson said he went into politics because nobody ever raised a statue to a journalist, which, like other things that Boris Johnson has said, is not actually, strictly speaking, true, because not very far from here there's a statue to John Wilkes, who's one of the great radical journalists of all time. But I know what he means. Why do you think, then... I mean, is this a modern problem? Obviously, you're a decorated historian as well. Is this, is this a modern problem that journalists see politics as a viable... A profession in a way that perhaps it hasn't been before. But I was just wondering what a decorated historian would look like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, you know, like you, but with baubles. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Bring on the baubles! I actually did have some Christmas decorations here the other week because it was the rescheduled Christmas special. I had an inflatable Santa Claus for Jacob Rees-Mogg and literally... Everyone hated it. <laughs> it was a real shame. Um, but do you, is this a modern problem? And, if, uh, and either way, why do you think we've seen more journalists going into elected politics? So, I am very, very old. And when I, <laughs> I, when I first came into the House of Commons as a reporter in 1984, and there were different people in politics then, literally on the Labour benches, there were lots of people who'd been involved in making things. There were, you know, there were coal miners, there were people involved in the sheet metal industry, there were all sorts of engineers and so forth, and they knew stuff. 
Um, I remember seeing John Major, when he was a young minister, being taken to pieces over a piece of um, pension reform that he was trying to get through the House of Commons in a committee by an old, rather inarticulate minor um, who happened to have been the NUM pension officer in his pit, and he knew exactly the psychology of how pension uh, uh, conscription were, were collected and how it was done, how the maths were done. And of course, Major knew nothing of this. And this guy just took him to pieces. It was really important to have half the House of Commons, at least, staffed by people who had actually done stuff. And then on the Tory side, you had um, lots of business people. And whatever you thought of them, they, they knew what a, um, a balance sheet looked like. They'd had to fire people. They'd stayed up all night worrying about their, um, their cash flows. They understood the practicalities, the nuts of business. And so you had this huge, huge swirl of um, understanding and knowledge and wisdom, frankly, in the Commons. And what's happened since then is that huge numbers of people have gone straight into politics from university. They've become bag carriers, they become spads, they go and work at central office or for a trade union, then they move over. If you're very, very lucky, they're teaching politics at a university for a while first. But they haven't actually done anything outside the world of politics. And so, to my mind, the House of Commons, who's got lots and lots of bright people in the House of Commons, don't get me wrong, but there are far too many people who have never done anything else, and that's a real problem for it. Um, and so the answer to your question is, of course, journalists don't know how to do anything else, so of course they migrate into politics. I'm in journalism because when I left university, um, I had no skills whatever. Um, lots of people come out of university, you know, they can speak different languages, um, or they understand how to take apart uh, engines of different kinds, or they can do complicated mathematical algorithms, or they can code, or whatever it might be, or they can play the piano. I could do none of those things. I'd studied English very, very briskly, so I could, I could read. <laughs> um, and I'd grown a pretty unsatisfactory beard and had a large collection of little tin badges of various causes on my jackets, but that was the limit of my skill. And so journalism was really the only thing that called. Um, but you say that was skill. Obviously, you're a phenomenal communicator and one of our greatest ever broadcast well, journalists. So you, you do have a skill for that. I've never stopped drinking whiskey and I've never stopped talking. <laughs> it's, ama it's, it's amazing that you can build a career out of this. <laughs> but when you think of yourself then at university, you were a Maoist, I think, is the I, yeah, No, I wasn't. This is a lie. OK. This is a lie propagated by George Galloway. <laughs> if he's, I hope he's listening. Anyway, um, no, I was a Maoist, but I was a Maoist when I was at prep school. Okay. When I was when I was nine years old, because I read I, I read the papers. Yeah. I was I was I was advanced in the sense I actually did read the newspapers, and a lot of the time it was the Cultural Revolution going on. And one of the things they kept saying about the Maoists was that they were forcing the professors and the teachers to go out into the fields and pick crops and pick potatoes. And looking at my teachers, I thought this was an absolutely splendid idea, <laughs> fantastic. And so I wrote a letter to the Chinese embassy in London. And so I came from this school, Craig Flower School, Torreyburn, Fife, and I wish to set up a, a, a cell of the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> <laughs> and I, they clearly didn't realise it was from a school... From a, I was nine or ten. And they sent these huge boxes. I can remember the headmaster saying, Ma, Ma, come here, there's all these big boxes arrived for you. And they were hundreds of little red books. 
And so I distributed little red books to the entire school. And, and we had, a, we had, a, um, we had a, a, a subscription to a magazine called China Reconstructs, which in those days showed lots of pictures of little Chinese peasants with pistols shooting down American imperialist aggression, <laughs> planes and so on, and all of that. Um, so, yes, I was then. Yeah. And actually, a few years ago, a few years ago um, there was, I was at some meeting where the Chinese ambassador and various other people were, and they presented me with the Red Book because they'd remembered. But that was, as I said, I stopped being a Maoist by the time I was 11, in fact. Um, so what, you were then a Stalinist? I, no, I was never a Stalinist. At uni, I, I was a sort of leftish member of the Labour Party. I was commonly a, a footite, a tribunite, no, no further left than that. OK, and then, do you then go on a political journey after that? Or is that where you still are now? Yeah, no, I, I have definitely moved. I, I am much more wobbly, boring, wet, wibbly central, <laughs> centrist these days. Um, it's what happens to many of us in, as we age. Uh, but no, I was, I, was, I, was, I was definitely of the left. I had an absolutely nightmarish interview with the BBC um, when I got out of university. I was trying to get a job. And uh, I started a PhD, but I wanted to work for the BBC. And I still had my little red linen beard, which didn't, and a vast amount of unruly hair and spots, and lots of CND badges and anti-apartheid badges and all the rest of it. So I didn't absolutely look the part. And I went along to the BBC, and you, you have a morning of tests in those days. So they would give you lots of different um, stories and keep changing the stories. And you had sat at the typewriter and tried to get the story of the bulletin. And all those kind of things happened in the morning. And then they said there's a lunch break for a couple of hours, and so I did the obvious thing. I went and had a few beers and lay down in Regent's Park and fell asleep in the sun. <laughs> and woke up. They said, you've got the job. <laughs> and I woke up, realising I was late. I ran back to the offices just over, over the road from our broadcasting house, where they were doing interviews, and I had one of those complete mind fades that happens when you've had a few beers and you fall asleep at lunchtime. And I, can, I knew it was going badly... I could tell it was going badly when they started to speak a little slowly because I clearly was not understanding the questions. And what, the, the only bit I remember is them saying, so, Andrew, what would you like to do at the BBC? And I couldn't think of anything to say at all. I was thinking, and they said, very interesting what they said, would you like to be a sports reporter at the BBC? <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, yes. And they said, are you interested in sport? And I said, no. <laughs> and that was it. So that, that was the kind of highlight of my sort of uh, left-wing attempt to get, a, to get jobs in the media. It didn't go very well. OK, so having a drink at lunchtime, obviously, then, it was it that you were not that bothered at that point? Or was that a nerve relief thing? No, I was just stupid. Okay. I mean, I, I, just, I hadn't thought it through. I hadn't remembered there was a big interview in the afternoon and I hadn't thought about it. So then how much time elapses between that moment and you getting your first job at the BBC? Well, actually, you've got to go through time. Scotsman mm. and the Independent, all those a sorts of things. I mean, I, I, I'm basically a newspaper guy yeah. who, who blundered by mistake into broadcasting. Um, I spent the first half of my life, uh, my working life, in, in newspapers and magazines, but mainly newspapers. Thanks to the Scotsman, I got a proper training in Newcastle, the Thomson Regional Newspaper Training Scheme. And again, people don't believe it, but those days it was the real old hardcore, so you're taught to do the death knock when someone's died and you go on the door and you get the photographs off the mantelpiece, all that kind of stuff. We were even taught, we were given screwdrivers and told how to take the voice boxes out of public telephones. Because if you're on a story, there's, a murder, there's been a murder 
in Bury. All the national newspapers pour into Bury, and your job is to get the story first. So the first thing you do is you go around all the, all the telephone boxes and you vandalise them. <laughs> so your, your rivals can't phone their stories in. Uh, clearly, for days, mobile phones. And you, and you go to the pubs and you bribe the landlords to say, put up for not working notices and so on. So it was really old-fashioned, and you're you're taught shorthand and all the rest of it, and you're taught how to get stories. So it was really thanks to the Scots when I got into journalism. All of those skills, and I've used none of those skills (laughs) apart from shorthand ever since, I have to say. But, um, yeah... But drinking at lunchtime? Drinking at lunchtime, absolutely standard. (laughs) And, you know, people, there's a lot of conversation, for obvious reasons, um, the sort of sexy attractors and so forth this week, (laughs) about behaviour in the House of Commons... But in the 80s, it was really quite wild. I mean, as a journalist, you take uh, politicians out to lunch, and there were certainly a couple of occasions when they came back, and we came back, almost too drunk to stand. One guy passed out in the taxi and had to be lifted out by the police uh, after we, myself and a guy from The Guardian had taken him to lunch. So there's a very, very heavy drinking culture. And, you know, I'm not defending it. It was disgraceful in a way. But what then happened was the Big Bang. Nigel Lawson ended the drinking culture in this country because the city had the Big Bang, which meant all the big American banks came in, bought up and took over the stockbrokers and the the merchant banks in the city. And the Americans do not drink at lunchtime. They drink a lot in the evening, uh, but they don't drink at lunchtime. So mineral water came into the you know, all the top banks, and then that spread to the lawyers servicing the banks, and then to the the rest of the lawyers, and then eventually to the journalists as well, and it it killed the the drinking culture. So who were the MPs that you were going out with and and drinking? I'd better not give any names, but um, I can can give a couple. I mean, one of of my great sources was Alan Clark, if you remember the Alan Clark diaries. Of course, yeah. Um, And I used to take take him out. He... Um, a nasty little blizzardy smile would come on his face if he said, why don't you choose the wine? It was always a really bad idea because you then start, you know, how, how are we going to charge this stuff? Um, but I can remember my really, really embarrassing moment taking Alan to lunch and I took him to that very posh restaurant in Maiden Lane, Rules. You know, it's a very, very old-fashioned. Now, my view of Alan Clark, he's covered in tweed, he's got a castle, he's going to want to go to a game-type restaurant... So rules serves endless kind of, you know, trampled to death young grouse, you know, <laughs> garroted venison with kind of um, bathed in its own blood and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, we sat down there and, uh, and, and I said, ah, Andrew, why don't, why, why don't you order, order first? And I said, well, I have the garroted grouse and the stamped to death young venison. Um, and he said, well, I'll, I'll have... What do, you, what, do you have the spotted dick? I'll have spotted dick to start with. And then I'll have some more spotted dick for my main course. And I might have a further... And I said, what, what, what? And he said, you haven't done your research, have you? I'm not only a passionate vegetarian, but I'm deeply and passionately opposed to blood sports. <laughs> it was the most embarrassing lunch I've ever had. Um, but he certainly drank. <laughs> So with Galloway, then, he accused you of being a... a he a, said a I hung officer. around King's Cross selling Trotskyist newspapers. And he knew that because he'd seen me. I have never been to King's Cross selling newspapers. I've been through it to get trains, but I've never sold a newspaper at King's Cross, nor have I ever sold a Maoist newspaper. And was, was, he, was he telling he was, this story fondly? Was he misremembering? No, I, I don't think George tells many stories about journalists <laughs> fondly. 
Um, no, I think, he, to be fair to him, I think he just completely misremembered or got confused. Right, so it wasn't going, I remember Andrew Marr selling <laughs> Marist propaganda on the streets of London. I remember you, Mr Marr, and I remember your very publications. <laughs> very, very good, yeah. Dear George. Because he, he's one of those people that, that, that there are... You know, out there in the multiverse, mm. there's a world where George Galloway becomes leader of the Labour Party. He's a phenomenal orator. I'm not his hugest admirer, <laughs> but he is one of the very, very few orators in the House of Commons where you just, you, you know, you sit there and you're spellbound by the way he can speak. Uh, again, I'm telling, I'm telling old, old stories. When I first went in, there were only two people where everyone would be drinking in the bars and their names would come up on the annunciator system and people would leave the bars, leave their meals and go back into the chamber to hear them. One was Michael Foote and one was Enoch Powell. And surprise, surprise, they were quite, they were quite good friends, in fact. But both spellbinding speakers. Galloway was in that, in that same league and I think Robin Cook, actually, RIP. I'm very fond of Robin Cook. Um, the speech that he gave demolishing Tony Blair's case for the Iraq war was the single best piece of parliamentary oratory I've ever heard. And they put it on deliberately late at night so it would miss the 10 o'clock news. But it was absolutely extraordinary. Very few, and Galloway was in that, in, the, in that category, I would say. Both phenomenal, and both Scottish. I mean, for a period of time, most of the big talent in the Labour Party was coming yeah. through Scotland. And how times have changed? How times have changed. Or Welsh. I mean, I was listening to your interview with Neil Kinnock. Um, and um, I was a big fan of Neil, like you. And I think I was telling you earlier on, I was at Llandudno when he gave that very famous speech, which was then plagiarised by younger Joe Biden, where he talked about, why am I the first Kinnock in a thousand generations to go to university? Is it because all my ancestors were thick? And he builds this thing. It was a, it's a bit of a speech about social equity and fairness. Um, it was an amazingly powerful speech in quite a small hall in North Wales. And I was on the campaign trail with Neil and Glenys um, in, the, in that election. Um, was it 92? It might have been probably 92. And um, no, it was 87. It was 87 because Thatcher was prime minister. And um, surprise, surprise, um, the special branch police who were with us, with looking after him, were ardent Thatcherites absolutely passionate Thatcherites, and they had no love at all for the Labour Party in general, or Neil Kinnock in particular. Um, and there was lots of, sort of chat at the back of the bus about you know, the various follies of Neil Kinnock and all the rest of it. Richard Littlejohn was there, Alistair Oof. Campbell was there. You know, it was, a, it was a, a very sort of what, strange time. Anyway, during this speech, um, the policeman's job, the special branch guy's job, was to stand down there at the front of the, the stage, looking back at the audience, because he was watching for someone to throw something or going to attack Kinnock, whatever. That was his job. And Kinnock was doing this extraordinary speech, of why I'm the first Kinnock in a thousand generations to go to university. And um, I looked up, and this guy, who was absolute thatcher, I couldn't stand Kinnock, he was sobbing. His face was wet with tears, and he was completely broken by what Kinnock was saying. That's what a great orator can do. I mean, it was the same... I'm sure people were here for the Kinnock night... We all left weeping. Oh, his, his ability to move an audience. Extraordinary man, absolutely extraordinary. And those sorts of orators. I mean, Gordon Brown had that as well to some extent, that, that sort of uh, labour yes. tradition, the sort of yes. strong, deep moral compulsion at the heart of a speech. He didn't have the hule, he didn't, and he didn't have the sort of the lightness on his feet. 
Um, because, you know, as a journalist, you get given the, 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 a copy of the speech in advance, this is what they're going to say, and you go through it. And Kinnock treated each sentence like sort of Liberace treating a kind of a simple tune. In other words, he riffed on it, he threw it upside down, he found five or six different synonyms for every second word. And in a way, you know, he was called the Welsh windbag, but it was windbag in the sense of glorious wind music. <laughs> and it was extempora, you know, extemporised, absolutely amazing. I mean, just the sheer intellect to be able, and the confidence to take a speech and twist it around, throw it up in the air, catch it, fling it around. I mean, extraordinary. And I think Gordon, for all his... Uh, you know, advantages could never do that. So how did you feel then? You, you start off as a, a nine-year-old Maoist. Uh, <laughs> you're then still on the left when you're yeah, at university. Yeah. And then, throughout this period, Labour starts to become more appealing to the public, and then it's in government. And culturally, it's very different to the, the boozing of the 80s or to the oratory of Kinnock. It's managerial. Tony Blair, a very compelling communicator, yes. but the culture of the party was and the culture of politics more generally was changing. How did you feel about that, not just as a journalist, but as a person of the left? What was your view of New Labour at the time? I was excited because I thought it was, you know, the, what um, Tony said did sound very exciting. And, you know, why should we be held back in this way? It did feel the Conservatives had been in power for a very, very long time and the country was desperate for change. Um, as it happened, we, we, we knew the, uh, the Blairs because my wife Jackie, who's in the audience here, was at university at the same time as him. And I remember her saying, she can confirm it or not, that he was a kind of long-haired Christian guitar player who didn't, who didn't have much interest in politics. And she was staggered to meet him later on, to be told. And he said, oh, you'll never guess, you'll never guess what I've done, Jackie. Guess what I've done. I've joined the Labour Party. And she said, you what? I said, yes, yes, I, I met this woman called Cherie, and she's persuaded me. Um, so, um, and, you know, he, when he was a, a young MP, you know, we would sort of change our kids' nappies um, to together and, you know, wash up dishes together. He's, he was just an absolutely regular guy. But I, as a journalist, had been inoculated a bit against some of the weirdness of New Labour before he got into power, because in the run-up I was um, editing The Independent when I was, I think it's fair to say, the single least successful national newspaper editor in the entire history of Fleet Street. Anyway, um, I... Uh, oh, and what, what is the metric for that, by the way? How do you measure that? So, um, you know, they talk about people being defenestrated. So I was defenestrated from the job of editor of the Independent, which is extremely painful, because they, at that point we were halfway up Canada Tower, which is the biggest <laughs> tower in in Canary Wharf, so it was a long way down. Anyway, I was, I was chucked out. Um, and then, for various reasons, I was re-fenestrated. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was given the job again. And then I was dee de I was thrown back out again. It was extremely painful. Um, so that was the metric. Um, and also, we weren't selling many newspapers. That was another metric. <laughs> um, not, not an unimportant one. Um, but, yes, so... Uh, Neil, uh, sorry, um, Tony Blair had written an article on St George's Day, just passed, in The Sun. It's clearly written by Alistair Campbell, obviously, <laughs> um, in which he had said that Sun readers could relax about New Labour because he was determined to take on Europe, take on Brussels, and he was going to slay the dragon of Euro-federalism. <laughs> now, at the same time... You know, dear, dear brother Tony was having people from the Guardian and the Independent and no doubt the New Statesman and so forth in and, it, and assuring them that he was very, very pro-European. He was probably pro-Euro. He wanted to get rid of the pound. And so he was, you know, speak to, to talk about forked tongue was, was, was... Anyway, 
I slightly stupidly lost it and wrote a little piece on the front page of the Independent saying this is the most disgraceful piece of hypocritical tripe and if this is how Tony Blair is going to behave, if he thinks he can talk you know, with one side of his mouth to the Sun and the Telegraph and the other side of his mouth to the Liberal press and we're not going to notice he's an idiot. Um, and I, I used fairly strong language. And uh, a little while later, David Montgomery, who was part owner of the paper, came and knocked on my door with a nasty smile on his face. He said, oh, said, he was an Ulsterman, and I can't do the accent, but he said, I, I, I've been asked, I'm, I've been told I have to fire you, I'm afraid I'm good. And I said, why is that? He said, I've just had Tony and Alistair on the phone. Uh, they were in the back of the car together, and they phoned up and they said, you've gone mad. <laughs> you've clearly gone mad, so you have to be fired. He said, but I'm not going to fire you, yet. <laughs> anyway, so I, I kind of knew what they were about. I, you know, I, I had an early experience of it, so I wasn't quite as bowled over and emotional when they, when they came in as I might have been. So when you're then interviewing Tony Blair, as you did multiple times when he's Prime Minister, mm. would, would there ever be any small talk about the old days? Would he ever say, that, Andrew, I know we had you know, differences back then, and I know that perhaps when you are at the Independent <laughs> stuff might have... It happened, but I just want you to know that you know, there's no hard feelings. And that is exactly <laughs> what he said. Those words in that way. <laughs> but was it, did he ever acknowledge that there was prior stuff, or was it just always? Oh no, no, he was he was always uh, affable and amiable, and still is. You know, we still talk, and um, he's a very, very clever bloke. And um, I felt very, very... My biggest, I think my biggest failure at the BBC was not to be harder on the Iraq war. Um, I felt very strongly early on, um, in fact, we all did in my family, that this was going to go badly, that it was the wrong thing to do. And I did a series of tough pieces to camera about that. But I got it wrong. I thought it was going to go badly wrong because I thought I'd bought it a bit into the, the propaganda from Baghdad about the strength of the Iraqi army. And I thought it would be a bloodbath in which a lot of British soldiers and Americans would be killed before the regime was defeated. It would be defeated, but it would be horrible. And, of course, when the British and the Americans walked into Baghdad almost without a shot being fired and he, the, the regime collapsed, I was then too praising of Tony um, you know, he, he stood against public opinion, he stood against that million-strong march in London, and he'd been proved right, yada, yada, yada. And I was wrong about that, because what followed was horrific. The civil war and the massacres and, you know, the eventual ISIS takeover, all of that followed from the war. So I, I was... I was um, my timing was all out. And, you know, we, we, we fell out quite badly over that period, because I think he still feels it very strongly, and he still defends it. And I think it was one of the great sort of foreign affairs catastrophes of modern times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I mean, that must have been a phenomenal time, not just to be a broadcast journalist, but specifically at the BBC, yeah. when the Hutton Report oh, and yeah. the effect on Greg Dyke and Gavin Davies and Andrew Gilligan and all that sort of thing. And... What was the feeling within the BBC? I remember the time when Greg Dyke leaves and there are people like outside the building begging him to go back in. It felt like there was a lot of love specifically for him as a boss and the fact that the government was effectively attacking this, this great institution. Greg was an absolutely charismatic leader of the BBC. He was an extraordinary guy and we did feel very emotionally about that. And I think everybody felt under attack. Everybody felt let down by some of the journalistic failings that happened at the time. Um, my little role in it all was that, well, I was acting as a go-between, frankly, I mean, between members of the BBC and the government trying to get them together to talk it through, it didn't work. And I can remember being phoned by, or maybe I phoned Gavin Davis on the day of one of the big BBC meetings, and I said, you know, this is getting really, really serious. And he said, I'm going to have to go, Andrew, I'm, I'm going to resign. And so I said, well, you know, commiserations, Gavin. And I went out onto the news and announced that he was resigning. Unfortunately, not realising that he had decided he wasn't absolutely sure and he hadn't done it yet. Anyway, he then did. He then did. <laughs> it must be so hard. I mean, obviously, people are highly professional. Yeah. They're highly skilled. Yeah. They're able to put their own politics to one side in the same way that civil servants are. But still, when you're reporting on a war that you have misgivings about and your employer is embroiled mm. in a judge-led inquiry as a result of its reporting on the war yeah. that you disagree with. I mean, that must be... You, 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 was, you sort of chastise yourself for getting your timing wrong. I mean, that, that pressure and that... Not pressure in the sense that um, the work pressure, but just the pressure to even actually know what to think and say in the middle of that. Yes, it was immense. a very intense and weird time. And don't forget, before the war started, um, then Blair and therefore the rest of us had gone careering around the world assuring various thugs and dictators that we were not going to do what we were going to do. So, you know, we went to interview Gaddafi and we were in Syria um, uh, of, uh, to see Assad. Um, and so it was a very strange time, always out uh, and then back and forward and back and forward and back and forward um, to Washington. I've got a photograph somewhere of... Um, Tony Blair's press secretary, Angie Hunter, leaning out of a car, pointing upwards with a big smile on her face in one of those motorcodes, and it just says Damascus. That's Tony on the road to Damascus. <laughs> um, but I, I, I got a great insight into how journalism misfires um, during that period because I was on the, flight, what, the flights to see uh, Bush where or, you know, they were going to discuss war plans. and It was already clear that... Um, the State Department and the Foreign Office had misgivings about the idea that you could go to war in Iraq and it would just be kind of Missouri with palm trees afterwards. It would be absolutely fine. Um, uh, but the, the, all the sort of propaganda about the need to go to war was getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And on the flight over, um, there was the lobby and the Sunday lobby, and um, Alistair Campbell and co were briefing about latest information was that Saddam had rockets that could fire, I don't know, 600 miles or something. So they couldn't reach Britain. But somebody pointed out, one of the journalists pointed out, ah, that means they could reach Cyprus. Oh, yes, they could reach Cyprus. And there is a British base in Cyprus. 
Um, and another journalist said, uh, and we still think there could, there could be nuclear weapons still there in, in, in uh, Iraq. And one of the Tony teams said, yes, well, that's possible. So all they'd said was that 600 miles could... By the time the Sunday lobby had got together into a huddle and tried to work out what was the splash story for all of them, it was Saddam's threat to nuke Britain. And that was not... Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell misleading the press. It was the press cooking up a story that was a better story than they'd been given in the first place. And that's what's difficult, isn't it? Because you've got, once you've got a government set on a, a policy and it's building that case, you're also putting that through a tabloid lens. And there yeah. are people who, for their trade, exaggerate and sensationalise and things like that. Simplify, then exaggerate. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it must be. In you know, being charitable to your past self, it must be very difficult when you're reporting on something as big as a war. Yeah. Obviously, we see everything through the lens of Iraq now. At the time, we didn't have the benefit of that hindsight. We didn't. And I sometimes worry that we don't learn all the lessons we need to learn because, you know, we're in a very, very perilous situation right at the moment. I mean, this is meant to be light-hearted and comedy. But nonetheless, if you look at some of the things we are saying about Russia... Um, I interviewed on LBC uh, General Sir Richard Sheriff, who was deputy leader of SHAPE, the European um, Defence Organisation. And um, he said, well, of course, there will never be war, there will never be peace while Kremlin... Well, start again, Andrew. There will never be peace while Putin is in the Kremlin. And Biden has said something very similar. So you now start thinking, OK, well, that we're going in to help the virtuous and um, invaded people of Ukraine protect themselves against monstrous Russian aggression. Absolutely right. And we're going to give them the tools they need to defend themselves. Absolutely right. But if we're talking about our real war aims now, being to have regime change in Moscow, where does that lead? If we're talking, as Liz Truss has been recently, about uh, driving the Russians out of all the territory of Ukraine, that includes the Crimea where the Russians are really, really dug in. You can't drive the Russians out of the Crimea without World War III. And so I do worry that this business, we're all on the same side, we all know what needs to be done, there's not that much public discussion, was something we should have learned from the Iraq War, and we need to relearn right now. Have you ever interviewed Putin? Yes. And what was he like? And when was it? It was, uh, was it 2008? I think it was the... No, it must have been after that. It must have been like 2014, because I'd had a stroke. Um, it was the Sochi Olympics. The Winter Olympics. Le Winter Olympics in Sochi. And um, if you remember, there was a big LGBT issue there. And so, as it happened, I just interviewed Elton John for my programme <laughs> because he had donated an organ to the Royal College of Music where he learned music. What, a liver? <laughs> no, no. As he kept saying, my enormous organ. Um, and so we, we'd done the interview, and I'd managed not to snigger all the way through the interview. Pretty impressive. And afterwards, he, Elton said, he said, I gather you're off to interview uh, President Putin in Sochi. I said, yes, I am, next week. He said, well, would you give him a Donna Summer album and a kiss from me? <laughs> and I thought, on balance, probably not. <laughs> But I did ask him about gay rights. I asked him, and he gave the absolute classic thing, I have many gay friends, he said. Um, <laughs> I thought he was both incredibly clever. He was being interviewed by me, a Dutch journalist, the American journalist, George Sinopoulos, and a couple of Russian journalists, um, in different languages, all at the same time. And he was picking up what was being said in great detail. 
um, very, very acute. So he made some, he was, somebody asked him, um, so President Putin, who is the other world leader you most admire? And he gave the most appalling oily answer about the importance of spiritual leadership in the world today and how much he admired the Pope. And I, because I do like my history, remembered that Stalin, when somebody had mentioned the Pope way back during the war, he said, yeah, but how many divisions to see how many tank divisions does the Pope have? <laughs> and so I muttered, yes, but how many divisions does he have? And Putin swiveled right down, looked at me, and gave me a big grin and nodded and said, exactly, but. So, I mean, he was listening. He was, he was listening very closely. But the other thing I remember is that um, we interviewed him at a kind of weird ski lodge uh, up, up a mountain, and about... 20 minutes before he arrived by helicopter, the entire sort of Russian side, that is all the translators and the officials and the security people and the journalists and stuff, were literally shaking with fear because he was about to arrive. He absolutely terrified them. And really, I should have learned more from that experience. Um, I was, I was couple, a couple of times, weirdly, I was mistaken for him. Uh, at the same time. <laughs> I, I, Putin has got this great sort of um, football face now with too many steroids and so forth. And I am known... In fact, I, I was hired first by the BBC and then by LBC purely on account of my looks. <laughs> Incredibly <laughs> handsome. But weirdly, I have been mistaken by him for him a couple of times. Once in the Kremlin itself, where I tried to run out of an interview and got, got lost and was running down a corridor. And... Um, a couple of guys jumped to their feet, soldiers, and saluted when I went into their room. <laughs> and I, I think they thought, oh, fuck, yes, sorry, I'm not sure. Sorry, they can swear, it's fine. He, he, here's, here's, here's Vladimir Vladimirovich. He was <laughs> much earlier in those days, they probably didn't recognise him. And then once the Queen is alleged to have had a similar moment when she was, you know, remember he came here for, um, it's very strange, these stories, aren't they? He came here, Putin, for. Um, some big parliamentary occasion. And so he addressed the House of Lords and the House of Commons in Westminster Hall. And then you go to the Buckingham Palace. And the way they did it in those days, certainly, was an open lando, you know, those carriages with horses. And so you could see the Queen and Putin apparently chatting away all the way up Birdcage Walk on the way into the, into the palace. And I've got a friend who's got a friend who's an equerry at the palace who apparently, allegedly, said to the Queen afterwards, Mom, can I ask you something? She said, yes, what is it? And she said, Mom, can I ask you what you and President Putin were talking about? You seem to be a very animated conversation. She said, yeah, I, I, I can't remember. I just kept saying to myself, I must remember, this is the President of Russia and not that chappy from the BBC. <laughs> Who do you think she preferred? <laughs> I think Putin, probably. <laughs> <laughs> because the royals' relationship with the BBC is very tricky, isn't it? I mean, obviously, oh, yeah. Nicholas oh. Witchell had a, 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 a terrible time. That bit that where ghastly, Charles that Mottes... ghastly man. <laughs> ghastly man. Ghastly man. Ghastly man. Did you ever have any run-ins with them? And, and do you think the BBC should, and the media in general, cover them in the critical way which they cover other areas of our national life? I think, I mean, I'm a sort of queenist, I would say. I think because she's been there all of our lives and she has not really put a foot wrong when it comes to expressing her views mostly, etc. Um, she's in our, you know, people dream about her, she's on the stamp, she's on the money. She's kind of interwoven with our personalities. I still think you have to look at the institution critically and think about it critically. But I think she herself has had a kind of mystique which during my lifetime is not going to go. Um, 
I think the rest of them, I think the next generation, that's an entirely different thing. And I think it's right to ask hard questions about the financing and the money and are there too many working royals? Are they, are they working hard enough when they're working? All that kind of stuff. Um, I followed the Queen around for a series of films I made and a book I wrote about her. And all the way through, I've been promised you know, that there'd be a conversation. She doesn't do interviews, but she's prepared to have a conversation with you. And it kept being put off and put off and put off and put off. And eventually I was summed to some ghastly um, reception at Buckingham Palace and told that if I stood at the end of this line, then she would stop and have a conversation. President uh, Putin, how lovely to see exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> and so, so I was mic'd up, uh, a bit like I am now, but with a very big fluffy mic. So she could remember who it was she was supposed to be talking to, and the cameras were arranged, and she was mic'd, and what it came along. And um, uh, she, she, uh, I, she said something, and I asked a question. She went, pointed at my mic, and went... <laughs> so, yeah, so that was my interview. <laughs> I mean, so it is frustrating. I mean, I, I mean, of all the jobs in journalism, I think being a royal correspondent's the worst. I really do. I mean, it is odd when you're used to, particularly on something like the BBC, when the government, you see them held to account, you see politicians held to account, and then sometimes you see similar presenters or the same presenters doing a royal wedding, and the day before they go, the Prime Minister hangs by a knife edge, people saying that he cannot be trusted, mm. the liar in Downing Street, and then the next day they go, and the Queen there with her trademark smile. <laughs> and I think that often suggests that the Queen is happy. And they go, yes, the Queen often smiles when she's in a good mood. Not so much when she's in a bad mood. She's like, what mm. dimension am I in? I know. It's, it's, to be fair, to be fair to the BBC and share colleagues and all the rest of it, I think it's fair that, to say that Emily Maitlis held Prince Andrew to account fairly effectively. <laughs> um, when, with all the sweating. Oh, man. One of the greatest... You know what? There was that one week, and then uh, Andrew Neil interviewed Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, and that was like it was like the FA Cup final followed by a World Cup final. Like, yeah, this yeah. is amazing. The yeah. interviews had become yeah, and of course Boris Johnson declined to be interviewed by him again afterwards, if you remember. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's that great bit in the um, the first one where he stands against Jeremy Hunt for the leadership, I think, and. Andrew Neil keeps saying to him something about uh, it might have been about Article 16 or Article 40 or something. And he said, ah, but what about... So (laughs) his researcher... So Boris Johnson was briefed to know all about Article 40, shall we say, or Paragraph 40, 40, 42. And the researcher had found there was another one below that, which was slightly different, and said said to Andrew Neil, ask him about that, and he was completely floored. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because you can't do that. And I always did him as Irish, Andrew Neil, but he's, he goes something He's not like, Irish, definitely. Oh, no, I, I've met him and he's definitely not Irish. <laughs> but he does sound it. He's got, like, I don't know why I can't quite, but he uh, says something like, um, but you can't do that under Article 16. He goes, no, 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 under Article 16, we can't do that, Andrew, under Article 16. He goes, what about Article 17? He goes, do you know yeah, what it says? No, he goes, yeah. no. <laughs> he just has <laughs> I mean, there is an element of, of, of uh, Boris Johnson which is simply very funny, and, and it, you know you, you're, you're not supposed to laugh, but you do when he when he talked about uh, kicking cats or down the down the ring. Not that I'm in favour of kicking cats. He suddenly stops, and you can see this kind of sod it kind of coming into his head. I've done it again. Um, What's he like to interview? Terrible. Absolutely terrible. He doesn't really care what you ask him. He just does his kind of explosive rant about what he wants to say. 
Um, it, there's almost no point interviewing him. Because, first, first of all, there's no point in asking the questions because he ignores the questions completely. And that as an interviewer, you then have a choice. You either stop him, and that means being quite sharp verbally. I told him to stop chuntering at one point. Um, and that gets you huge amounts of abuse. People say, well, you know, he's the prime minister, why can't I let him speak and all the rest of it? Or you literally lie down on the floor and let him roll over you like a huge First World War tank until you're flattened. And neither of those things is particularly attractive and enjoyable. <laughs> but also, I mean, I have to say at the moment, you have to check an awful lot of what he says to see whether it's true or not. These are kind of fact-checking thing at the bottom of the screen. But that's very difficult in the moment, isn't it, in live TV? Because it's very easy for people to sit at home with a bit of distance or he mentions something that's in their policy area of expertise. As and they interview. Google it. And they, as an interviewer, you have to know about everything. And if the Prime Minister looks you in the eye and says, inflation was the lowest it's been for 25 years, whatever it might be, um, you have to be absolutely sure of everything to say, no, it's not. So at the moment, you just say, no, it's not, and you'll probably be right. <laughs> um. So your, um, your big break was being BBC political editor, mm. and that's when you're always outside number 10, and dead ringers used to do you with these big arms. Huge but, art, yeah. That was your style, was that you kind of had an expansive speaking style and big body language as well, mm. and that's when you captured the nation's hearts. Yeah. We were like, oh, this is a different way of doing it. Because until then, there'd been John Sargent and Robin Oakley, Michael Brunson... Well, he Br was ITV. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You'd, you'd it, had it was, sort of... The, the great John Cole. Yes. And, the, and then Robin, who, who was great, but who suffered from not being as charismatic as John Cole and also from having a not entirely loyal number two in John Sargent. <laughs> and it was a terrible thing. If you're, if you're live broadcasting and five or ten million people are watching the worst thing that could possibly happen to you is brain fade, when you suddenly forget what you're going to say and you go silent. And, of course, every second feels like an hour and it's just agonising. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen very often, but it happened to Robin one day uh, during a lunchtime broadcast. He completely froze. And he walked into the BBC offices afterwards feeling, I'm sure, absolutely crestfallen and devastated and a ghastly thing to happen. And uh, everyone's was looking busily at their computers, trying not to look up, pretend that they didn't. And, and um, Sergeant called from the other end of the room, Never mind, Robin, never mind, all of us have nearly done that. <laughs> um, so, you know, I took, I, I took over what was a totally non-poisonous and entirely happy ship after that. Um, but uh, the BBC were brilliant, because I'd never done live broadcasting before, and they gave me a kind of three- to six-week crash course in which everything went wrong, learn how to deal with these things. And so I was reasonably sure of myself when it started. Things did go wrong. I had one hideously embarrassing moment when I was doing some report on some, something gone wrong in Conservative Central Office. And even back then, they didn't like the BBC very much. And I was doing an evening report outside central office. And so they, they, it's at night time, they put up a little light and a camera and, and uh, the sound equipment and all the rest of it. And I'm standing at, in, in front of central office. And just before I'm about to speak, two or three kind of burly and not particularly friendly conservative central office researchers come and stand with their arms folded on either side of me, just a little bit too close for comfort. So I'm coping with that. And then I start to speak. And I get through, and, and they're sort of um, laughing or grunting or trying to put me off. But I can cope with that. And then the, the single bulb that's illuminating me goes out, goes, bing, <laughs> bulb, blows. Which means that 
The only source of light is from inside central. So all you can see is my little head and two huge ears. <laughs> and it's, it just looks awful. And I could have coped with that, uh, except for the fact that for some mad reason, the cameraman thought that maybe if he twiddled the bulb, it might come back on again. It was, of course, red hot. So he lifts up, <laughs> his hand comes across the camera... He, he, he grabs the bulb, he then shouts, fuck, and, <laughs> and the entire gantry falls across the camera. And I finished the sentence, and I thought, OK, I can do it now. Yeah. <laughs> because I think you invented... What I was going to make was... I think there was a t- personality type. Has this gone out, Is it? Cheers. Things going wrong on a live broadcast. <laughs> Am I handling this well, like it's live on the BBC? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah? not too hot, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Is that on? Yeah. yeah. Good. People don't sound too happy about the fact that I'm amplified. But <laughs> um, I think there was a type of political broadcast journalist that we had, and I think you were the new type, and I don't know if you would agree with that, but there was a way that you made... The way that you spoke was more expressive, mm. slightly more eccentric, more storytelling. Well, and um, I think that's had a legacy now. I think that's the way it's done. When I came to be to LBC recently, one of the somebody there said to me, "You have to remember the people listening to your show. They're they're, they're wondering whether to uh, unload the dishwasher. One of the kids is crying, or they're getting into a car. Um, there's a bus behind them, etc. There's lots of other things to think about, and you have to somehow grab their attention. And I kind of felt in the same way back then for the BBC that nobody has to watch the news." Um, you're, you're telling important stories, really important stories, you hope, but they're not stories that connect to people's lives necessarily. And so if you can really boil it down to one thing that they're going to remember, one metaphor or um, slightly silly action or something that says this is the essence of the story, and the hardest thing you can do, the toughest thing in journalism, is to take a really complicated, difficult story and boil it down to just a few clear words. You know, there's all that old George Orwell thing about use the short Anglo-Saxon words, never the long Frenchified ones. Boil it down to a few words and tell it in a way that people remember. Even five minutes later, and ideally an hour later, and perhaps even the next morning, then you've done your job. And that was, that's what I tried to do. But did you have a sense of it being television? I always got the sense that you were sort of aware that... Not that it's entertainment in a, in a cheapened sense, but that actually it's quite nice to hear someone be expressive and yeah. put on a bit of a show in a way. But, but also it's, it's a visual medium. You've got pictures, you use pictures. So um, I can remember one time where um, there'd been some big parliamentary around. I can't remember what it was about. But basically... Um, they'd been having this big parliamentary debate and the government had just changed the rules right at the end to, to win. And it was a bit like playing chess um, and then kicking the chessboard aside. So I got a huge sort of big plastic chessboard set and did this thing, walking, and people think, why do you walk through a chess set? And then explained. And then I just kicked the chess pieces in all directions. And that was a piece of kind of, you know, vaudeville theatre, rather. But there's no reason anything to get the message over. Yeah. Because that made it... I think you were sort of a breath of fresh air, really, to that sort of role. And, and, and I think when, I, when you watch other people now, I think you definitely had an effect on mm. the way that politics is covered. Mm. Um, well, when you watch other people do it now, do you miss it? Miss doing it myself? No, no. It's absolutely exhausting. Being, being BBC political editor, certainly when I was doing it, and perhaps I did it... Um, I think Laura Koonsberg was clever because she said she wasn't going to do the weekends hardly at all. But I was doing it from 7 in the morning for the Today programme 
um, right the way through until sometimes news night, so um, 11 o'clock, um, every day and weekends and travelling, um, and you're doing, you know, you're making films, the 6 o'clock news, the 10 o'clock news, you're doing lives, you're doing blogs, you're doing everything. It was absolutely exhausting. I did it for five years. Laura did it for seven years, and I don't know how she managed that. Um, so, I mean, because I'm not completely suicidal, I don't miss it. Um, and, and, but, I mean, you do get... You, you also suddenly become very, very well-known very, very quickly, which is if, if you're a newspaper guy, which I was, was very unexpected. Um, and the story I always tell is that I was in Waitrose in Eshin, where we then lived, doing the family shop on, at the weekend, having started the BBC, but not being kind of aware of people watching TV news and being very much... And I, you know, I got to the potatoes, and this bloke poked his head and sort of stared at me, and then popped down again. And I thought that was weird. Made my way to the oat cakes. Same thing happened. The bloke comes around again, stares at me, and I try to avoid him, avoid looking back, and I get the cheese. Anyway, he follows me all the way around the shop, and we, when we get to the, the till, he, he comes straight up and says, "Here," he says, "You look just like that Andrew Marr from the BBC." <laughs> Short pause. You poor bugger. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So then you do Sunday AM, which is effectively the successor show to Frost, Frost on Sunday. Yeah. And Frost, as, when I first started getting into politics and watching Frost, I was like, I don't get the attraction of this. This is just like a sort of old man going, Prime Minister, how are you? And then it was like, what? How the fuck is this guy holding these fields together? And then in time, you're like, oh, oh my god, that was the genius of it. It was very. It was, was a very, fireside chat. He was very clever. And he, he was, was very amazing. relaxed, and he wound you in, and and then people said things they wouldn't otherwise have said. Yeah. Again and again and again. I know he was no fool. It was frosty. It was, and then it was only towards the end you go, oh my god, actually this is the greatest trick. Mm. He's hiding, and obviously I was young, so I didn't appreciate what Frost had been. Also, I mean, he'd been on television since he was about seven years old. I mean, all the way through the satire boom, British television was invented about the same time as David Frost was invented. <laughs> and, you know, and so he was absolutely in with the bricks. He, was, he represented the whole tradition of British television from satire onwards. And therefore, all politicians were somehow in awe of him. They, were, they, they knew they were in the, in the presence of a, a sort of uh, almost mythical figure. And that helped. Obviously, he had that defining interview with Nixon. Yeah. Is that something that interviewers like yourself who have that platform are always looking for? Is there part of you at oh, the yeah. back of your mind that thinks, I would love that defining? Absolutely, moment? absolutely. I mean, it was a huge amount of luck, but he spent months and months and months and possibly years planning for it, preparing for it. He borrowed a huge amount of money himself to set it up. I mean, he, he was risking, it was a massive business risk as well, that inter those interviews. Yeah. And they went on and on and on. And he'd find somebody in Nixon who desperately wanted to explain himself back to the American people and thought this was his chance. So an interviewee who was desperate to talk, plenty of time, um, but it was only right at the end that Nixon said something which actually made it a historic interview. It was very, very nearly a big no-show uh, in terms of news. Um, so it was a massive risk for both of them. But do you have a person in mind that would be your Nixon? I'd quite like to do an interview with Donald Trump, at the end of which he said, Andrew, Andrew, I didn't mean any of it. I'm really sorry. I'm really, really sorry. <laughs> Andrew, i got to tell you, you're a beautiful guy. You're a very, very good man, i got to tell you that. And I prefer you to Piers Morgan. He is a bad dude. 
but that's also not true. But yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, you, you, how much of a frost was, influ- uh, was influencing you then in, in that slot? You're taking over that slot, that style of interview. Do you think I need to bring something completely new to it? Are you partially influenced by frost? What was your uh, approach to that slot? So the great secret of television is that you have to be yourself. Um, television is useless at lots of things. Um, if you want to understand the budget and look at the numbers, television is the worst medium because, you know, you get a little graph or you get the numbers on the screen and by the time you've begun to think about them, it's gone again and you've forgotten. <laughs> lots of things television is rubbish at. But if you want to know what Peter Mandelson is really like, television... Uh, if you want to know who people are, television. But it means if you're doing television as an interviewer or a reporter, be yourself. Don't try and be anybody else. So I couldn't be Frost. I didn't try to be Frost um, any more than I'd try to be Sophie Rayworth. It would work about as well. Um, you, know, you just have to be yourself. And um, I am sort of genial, gentle, you know. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not Frosty. I'm not that twinkly. I'm not that connected to the great and the good. I mean, Frosty's Rolodex was extraordinary. The Shah of Iran, you know. The, I went to those parties where, you know, he said, oh, you know, Shah, have you met Billy Connolly? Billy Connolly, have you, have you met Mr. Mugabe? Mr. Mugabe, have you met Prince Andrew? Always there. <laughs> um, and so on. Uh, they were extraordinary. I was, you know, I was, never, I was never going to be like that. But did you have an approach in the sense that you thought, well, this is very different to being political editor and I can't contradicts every answer. This has to be... I do have to sit back a bit more in this format. It has to be a conversation, and it's a Sunday morning conversation. It's not, you know, it it can't be fight, fight, fight. Um, And also, you have to remember that politicians have no constitutional duty to get up early and go on a Sunday morning television programme. So if they feel that you're shutting them down the whole time and they can't get their message over and they can't say what they want to say ever at all, they're not going to come on. So it has to be firm but fair. In other words, you have, to be, you have to know when to interrupt and say, that's not true, or why do you say that? And there can be some really confrontational ones. I had a very, very confrontational one with Nigel Farage. He hasn't spoken to me since. Uh, where I did the absolutely outrageous thing of asking about his previous policies, um, <laughs> which, he, which he wasn't expecting. It was very unfair of me. Um, they, 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 they included wanting, wanting the use of uh, arm handguns and stuff in the UK, all sorts of stuff that people have forgotten about. Anyway, um, but, you know, by and large, you're not there to beat people up. You're there to extract the maximum amount of interesting information you can get from that person at that time. And what about the external forces, then, given new media and social media? And you mentioned that the abuse that Laura Koonsberg gets. Hers is of a different nature to the, mm. the stuff you got, but... Some of it, at its root, is people watching it going, why didn't you say that? Why didn't you contradict that? In the moment in those interviews, are those things going through your head? And is it important to sometimes listen to even the harsher elements of social media criticism in order to improve? I think it's very, very dangerous not to listen to critics or to, to try and screen it all out. And that's always a mistake. What worries me at the moment is that a large section of um, viewers and the public listeners think that your job as an interviewer is to basically denounce people from their point of view. So the job is not to interview. Your job is not to get the information you can get out of them as best you can that day. Your job is to uh, self-righteously stand up and stand with your finger at them and say, you know, you're an awful person, you're a liar, you're a disgrace to public life, you should be out of parliament. You know, that, and they will never be satisfied until you actually punch them. I mean, that's what they really want. <laughs> and kind of that's not your job, that's not what you've signed up for. So that, that is a problem. 
I mean, I've had some fairly confrontational moments, but not like that. I can remember um, having a, a, a series of rough uh, confrontations with different members of the Labour Party during the Blair years, actually. When I, uh, and I can remember, towards the end of the Blair years, being at the Labour Party conference at the back of the hall after doing the news at 10, and there's a long corridor, and people had more or less left. They'd gone off to the bars and they'd gone to the restaurants, places mostly empty, and I was heading back after the 10 o'clock news. And then round the co corner of the corridor comes John Prescott, looking absolutely furious, bright red face, arms waving. I'm going to go do have a Neil Parrish moment because he did look like a kind of demented combine harvester. <laughs> and about five or six people behind him with their kind of looking absolutely terrified with their bundles of papers and boxes and stuff. And he came straight up to me and he stared at me and he stabbed me in the chest like he said, you bastard, you fucking bastard, you, you fucking bastard, I'll fucking have you, you fucking bastard. And then he, and then he just carried on. <laughs> And I was, le I was left thinking, what was that? But I didn't say anything particularly about John Prescott today, did I? What was all that about? I said, that's pretty strange. And then he came back round the corridor, uh, looking just as angry. He came, sorry, wrong bloke. <laughs> <laughs> Thought you were Putin. <laughs> OK, we've got time for a couple of quick questions from the audience. So if I can ask for one-sentence questions, please, and one-sentence answer, we'll try and get a few yep. through. If you indicate very clearly... Yes, right down the front here. At the end of the Andrew Marr show, you would always have a conversation with the last interviewer. What was often said? Or, and was there anyone who didn't want to speak with you? That was great. So at the end of the Andrew Marr show, it was, you had some small talk as the credits rolled. What was said and did anyone ever join in? Well, I would normally say, well, that was very interesting, just being polite, you know, that was interesting to kind of calm them down. The, the person who was always nightmarish was Theresa May who had no small talk of any time. <laughs> Can I tell my... Have I got time to tell my Theresa May Absolutely. story? Absolutely. There is a Theresa May story, which was that when she was Home Secretary, I cajoled and begged and badgered her to come on the show uh, so I could torture her about immigration figures, which I then did. She didn't want to come on. She liked her Sundays to go to church and all the rest. Very traditional. Um, but anyway, she came on, and it was not a particularly pleasant interview for either of us. It was quite nasty, and she didn't like it. But in those days, we always had a tradition of people coming for breakfast afterwards. And I sort of begged her to come for breakfast. And very, very reluctantly, she did. And she was wearing a kind of shot silk, grey trouser suit. Very chic. And uh, she sat opposite me on this long table. And I said, uh, Home Secretary, would you like some coffee? And she said, yes, please, I'll have some coffee. And so I poured her some coffee. And, uh, and there was this huge jug about... Uh, a foot and a half high of milk. Um, and I said, would you like some milk? And she said, yes, I'd like some milk. My coffee, thank you. And I reached for it, and I cuffed it with the side of my hand. <laughs> and I drenched her, uh, if you'll forgive, for, 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 from, from breasts to knees in ice-cold milk. And she was not happy. Um, and it was made worse by the fact that Helena Kennedy, Dame Helena Kennedy, was at the same table and leaned forward and said, oh, oh, oh! Teresa, that's a brand new suit. And Teresa went... <laughs> and, and, and it's absolutely ruined. It'll never be any good any longer. And it probably cost you thousands of pounds. <laughs> anyway, Teresa then sort of staggered off, looking very, very forlorn, and I felt terrible. And I sent her apologies, uh, you know, apologetic notes and flowers. Not a, not, nothing came back at all. And then a little while after that, I had my stroke. And I woke up in bed in the intensive care unit 
and of various messages. And about the first letter that came in was from Theresa May saying, I do hope we see you back on television, dash, no matter what it may do for my dry cleaning bill. <laughs> that, that was nice. That was nice. Wow, good honour. Yeah, I thought so. Because your, your stroke was caused by a rowing machine. Yeah, overwork. But too, too much work, too much stress. I would happen to be on a rowing machine like a typical bloke trying to hit a target that was stupid for a man of my age. And I, I tore my carotid artery and that was that. But then your recovery, because mm. I don't know, I can't imagine what it's like to actually then have to physically recover from that. I mean, how, you have a stroke in your sleep, effectively, so you yes, wake up and yeah. you're aware that you've had a stroke. What's it like when you first open your eyes? Uh, I woke up on the floor beside the bed, because I'd fallen out of the bed. And the weird thing was I couldn't get up, and I couldn't work out in my mind why I couldn't get up. And I got very, very angry. Very irritated. A terrible way to start the day. You're on the floor, you're cold, and you can't get up. Anyway, I st- after a long time, and the reason I couldn't get up is that my left arm and left leg are par- were, were and are paralysed. And I got up, I staggered to the shower, and I tried to lift my foot into the shower, and I couldn't lift my foot into the shower. And I thought, that was weird. And I looked at the mirror, and I had that, you know, the, 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 the mouth goes down. So that was when I realised. Um, and I was, I mean, I'm very lucky to be here, frankly, you know. But there are... Obviously, you can tell if you watch you walk across a stage or something, but sat here now, you would never know. So how intense is the physio, whatever it is you have to do? And without it, how bad would it have been? It's very, very intense, and I'm sure I would have been in a worse state. But there comes a point when you can't really improve, or I couldn't improve any better. And the problem with physio is the only answer is more physio. Physio is incredibly boring. I don't know how many people here have done it, but it's very, very boring. I had lovely physios who were incredibly sympathetic and empathetic, but it's still incredibly boring, and I'm an impatient man, and I got very, very bored by it. So I did as much as I could, then I realised I wasn't getting much better beyond that. Um, and as a professional talker, the, the worry that you might lose your voice... To be fair, so I was, I was treated in Charing Cross Hospital in Hammersmith, and one of the amazing things they did for me there was they rigged up a little screen with an auto-cue, to, to, so that I, I could learn to read auto-cue first thing. Because I had a slight... The, the, that part of the mouth was a bit paralysed. So I was slightly, um, I would say, soft in my... I go slightly... Sh- sh- uh, um, uh, James Bondish. Oh, nice. You know, <laughs> but, but, but less attractive. <laughs> and, and so I did, I did have to learn... I had speech therapy, and that did improve things a lot. And so, to be fair... You know, um, whatever people think of David Cameron, the first thing that he did was he agreed to be interviewed me by me when I was still pretty crocked to show that I could be back on TV. Uh, and you recently had him on LBC then? So do you, do you, I did. Do you but, no, we don't. But I'm, I'm not close. He, just, he agreed to come on after my wonderful team, some of who were here, had begged him to, and he came on. And it was interesting, to say the least, because my editor, uh, ex-BBC as well, Rob Burley, had... Um, this is what good editors do, had spent the night before reading David Cameron's big autobiography. It's a brilliant read. It's actually very, very good indeed. It's so good. And he had discovered in that that Putin, uh, Cameron had had Putin into number 10. Um, May have been the same visit I was talking about earlier on. And um, it was the the Arctic convoys. It was old Arctic convoys veterans were getting medals. And because of the Russian connection, obviously, Putin came in. And in the course of the evening, Putin sort of sidled over to him and sort of smiled at him. And he said, David, David, I think I know that you think I have horns and a tail and I hate democracy. 
and you might be right. <laughs> and so there's a whole series of stories about Putin that he told in that. And you think, in retrospect, why did we not take him at his word? Why did we not realise this is a really, really bad guy who's not funny and is coming for us? Because he's told us. He hasn't hidden any of it. And so that was partly what the interview was about, and it was really interesting. It is, uh, I mean, I felt the chill go through the room when I said it was a good book, but it really is a very good read. Yeah. Uh, and I thoroughly recommend it. Not quite as good as My Trade by Andrew Marr, which is... That, that's a corker, yeah. Man. But it is... I remember... I think I must have got it for, like, a, maybe my 19th or 20th birthday. And the thing that I really remember... The two things that I really remember for it is the way you describe walking over the bridge in Edinburgh and seeing the Scotsman building, which yeah. is still there, it's still a stunning building... But also, I'd never realised, obviously because I was young, but in your book, and I think about this all the time, if the headline is a question, the answer's always no. That's right. And I'm just like, fuck! Is this the most evil man in Britain? No. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And so on, and so on. I think about that so often. I mean, that book has probably had more effect on me than the the Bible. Do you know what I mean? There's there's a life lesson every time I see that now. Bless you, my son. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, time for one quick last audience question. If there's anyone sort of near the back, so I always favour the front because I can't see people at the back. Is there anyone at the back who does want to ask? Shout. Hi. Yes. yes. And I'll repeat it for the benefit of the tape. Andrew, who would your top pick be for Labour leader in terms of most electable, most likely to win the next election? Great question. Who would your top pick be for Labour leader who's most so likely to win the next election? We're assuming that Starmer has fallen under a bus. <laughs> Because, oh, well, yeah, with, um, with I, 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 very keen. I think, I, I, I think Starmer's not doing enough. He's not doing well enough at the moment, but I think he can do, and I think he's perfectly... Uh, he's in a position where he could become the next Labour leader, uh, the next Prime Minister. In fact, I spoke to a very senior um, ex-Cabinet Minister, Tory, last night, who said the real truth about what we're going through now is that the next Prime Minister will be Keir Starmer. So um, I wouldn't ro- rule him out at all, but if it's not Keir Starmer, we streeting. And if it's not Wes Streeting, Lisa Nandy. Those well, yeah. I don't know if you know this, but my next guest in a fortnight oh. is Lisa Nandy. And my guest two weeks after that is Wes Streeting. So this... <laughs> we'll sit together as a kind of trilogy. And I know you've interviewed him, but if only he wasn't Scottish, Anna Sawa is a very, very stunning politician. Oh, in every regard. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Andrew, this has been an absolute privilege. Thank you so much. And the, hopefully you'll come back one day in the future because there's so much it. more I wanted to ask you. But th- this has just been thrilling and your stories are phenomenal. And thank you for giving us the insight of your remarkable career that is obviously still ongoing. And we love seeing you not only on LBC but on the sides of buses. <laughs> uh, I've got to tell you, I'm on tour at the moment, literally everywhere in the UK. I thought it was just a London thing. Everywhere yeah. you're on the yeah. side of buses. And every week in the New Statesman, please. Of course, every week that. in the New yep. Statesman. Thank you. Uh, so, you mentioned something earlier that I just wanted to wheel back and pick up on. If you could punch one politician <laughs> in the face, who would it be? Pass. I'm not going to... OK. There are so many. It's, uh, OK. <laughs> um, no, no. And, I'm, and, and I'm a very gentle, herbivorous forest creature. I'm a kind of <laughs> creeping little... You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a puncher. OK. What about... Not a punch, then, just a kind of... Um, a gentle... Just one down from a Will Smith... <laughs> I'm not totally pleased by what Nadine Doris plans for the BBC. <laughs> what an amazing note to end on. Well, ladies and gentlemen, before we go, thank you so much. Give yourselves a round of applause. It's such a wonderful audience. To everyone here at the Duchess and at Avalon who makes the show possible.
But please, a huge political party thank you to one of the true, true greats, Andrew Marr! Well, there you go, Andrew Marr, what a phenomenal guy. And also, genuinely unprompted, he lists West Streeting and Lisa Nandy as his tips for future Labour leaders or Prime Ministers, and they are my two next guests. So I, I couldn't believe, I could not believe that the fakes intervened. Um, well, obviously, what it shows is that my booking policy is excellent and that I only book um, past or indeed future Prime Ministers on this show. So you can get tickets for those and all the other shows at mattford.com. But Andrew Marr, my word, what a pleasure, what an honour. Um, and phenomenal talking to someone who obviously you've just seen on telly so much. And it's different to interviewing a, a politician because he's obviously a political broadcaster and he's someone who holds politicians to account and just, I think it's good to occasionally on this show showcase that, particularly people like Andrew Marr have been part of the furniture of our politics for so long, whose voice has explained to us so many stories. And I thought his stuff about Iraq was absolutely gripping because whatever your view on that conflict is, it's really interesting to get the view from inside the media and particularly not just holding the government to account for uh, the case they made for the Iraq war, but the media as well. And um, I, I just thought that was, uh, I was totally gripped to that point, as I was throughout the whole thing. Just what a phenomenal, funny man. And just so modest about his remarkable talent and, and glittering career. Um, so thank you to all of you that came to the show. You can get tickets for future ones at mattford.com. And uh, thank you for downloading this. Please share it. Please subscribe. Leave a five-star written review. Tell everyone you know. Uh, about this show and that can be your small way of uh, thanking me for making it so i'll see you next time ta -ra.